My name's Andrew, I'm a member of staff. Uh, special welcome to you if it's your first time here. Just want to add my welcome to that of Ian's. Um, I've just got a thankfully, uh, it's a bit of a shout out. Thanks, Peter, for handing me this this morning, just a resource from Barnabas Aid, um, especially this week where they have got um, just some, some particular information that's aimed at um, in increasing prayer, heightening prayer for the persecuted church. Um, also, you might be familiar with Open Doors and the Voice of the Martyrs. I'd encourage you this week also maybe to tap into their websites. I listen occasionally to Voice of the Martyrs um, kind of podcasts through YouTube and just really, really helpful in understanding what our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world are going through as they stand for Jesus and suffer um, pretty directly what we're about to understand together in 1 Peter chapter 4. Um, so if you want to grab that afterwards, please <clears throat> come and do that. I'm going to read for you uh, just the, a little bit of the experience of two members of the same family as recorded in this book here, The Insanity of God by Nick Ripken. I'd really recommend this book to you. The first half is fairly repetitive. The second half is absolutely dynamite and will remind you that the Lord works miracles in his world. My mother took my hand, recalled Stoyan, and together we walked up to the table where, only because of the piercing blue eyes staring out at me from those rags, <coughs> did I recognise this skeletal figure of a man as my father. I took my father's hand in mine, and I put my face close to his. I whispered, Papa, I'm so proud of you. I was 13 years old. Mama knew what my father would want most, <clears throat> so she slipped a little pocket New Testament under his wool cap. The jailer saw what she had done. He rushed over and took the little book, and then he summoned his commander. The officer took one look at the book before furiously throwing it to the ground. He screamed at my mother with a great crowd of people around us. Woman, don't you realize that it is because of this book and because of your God that your husband is here? I can kill him, I can kill you, and I can kill your son, and I would be applauded for it. Stoyan was remembering something that had happened decades earlier, but he recited the words as if they had been spoken yesterday. My mother looked at that prison officer and said, Sir, you are right. You can kill my husband. You can kill me. I know that you can even kill our son. And here's the point to underline it. But nothing you can do will separate us from the love that is in Jesus Christ. So Stoyan grew up and experienced decades of extreme hardship himself because of Jesus, but his stories were joyful and hopeful. And when I mentioned to Stoyan that it was going to take a long time to process the wisdom, insights and conclusions that this one man had drawn from his life treasure of faith experience, he smiled and replied, I thank God and I take great joy in knowing that I was suffering in prison in my country so that you, Nick, could be free to share Jesus in Kentucky. He said, that's the debt of the cross. He leaned forward and poked me in the chest with his fingers. He continued, don't you steal my joy? I took great joy that I was suffering in my country so that you could be free to witness in your country. And then he raised his voice in a prophet-like challenge. Don't ever give up in freedom what we would never have given up in persecution. That is our witness to the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the persecuted church said, and it still says to us, that the love of God in Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus' resurrection are, are too good to give up for any reason. Um, so that they, and the exhortation to us is that we should prefer to take up bodily pain and suffer than give up 
the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter said as he was speaking to people who were in a similar position then. He said that knowing Christ and becoming more like him will take us into suffering. But that's excellent. Because it actually takes us more and more into the will of God as we do it in Jesus' name. So this morning, uh, there might be several different points of application, certainly to understand the persecuted church better, because we will be learning from the persecuted church as Peter writes to it. Um, some of you, I know, might be increasingly feeling the heat in your government departments and some of you in the schools in which you teach, and that you do feel like you are being persecuted before the name of Jesus. And so I trust that this will be an encouragement for you. And for others of us, the challenge might be to consider... Do people around me know clearly that I am of Christ so that they might start getting upset with that? So it's a bit of a nod to my life group on Monday night. Again, a shout out because that was a reflection of a member of our group. And I thought that was really, really helpful because it could be the case for some of us that it's just not clear that we follow Jesus. And so we're not getting up anybody's nose, but maybe that needs to increase as we revere Christ as Lord, like we heard last week so that they would see that we say yes to Jesus and no to them. But that, that line, don't give up in freedom, what we would never have given up in persecution, that's a word to us. <laughs> because the resurrection of Jesus Christ and life with him is too good, isn't it? So we're going to be urged to arm ourselves with the same thinking as Jesus, live for the will of God, which will lead us into godly suffering, but it's going to mean that we're ready for God's judgment, and that's excellent. <laughs> Please join me and let's pray that these things have become clear and that we'd really love them and live them. Please join me and let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would help us to see more clearly the attitude of Jesus, who knew that it was far better to fear you than anything else, because you were good to raise the faithful dead, and that's what you did to him, and that's what you'll do to us as we trust him. We pray, Father, for your children around the world who are suffering today because of the name of Jesus. Please help them to rejoice that they are numbered amongst your children. And please make it clear to their persecutors, Father, that Jesus is alive in their hearts and in this world. We pray for ourselves, Lord God, that you would help us to revere Christ as Lord, to show that out to our colleagues and our neighbours and our friends, and to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have, Father. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So my key verse for the, this morning is the first verse, because I think um, it's majoring on the attitude of Christ, which led him to do what he did, but that's the foundation for us thinking about being like him and working, through, working that out through the rest of the passage. So do you want to have a glance down at verse 1, which says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Um, the Bible is such a cool book because it reveals the mind of God. And in this case, we're, we're getting inside the mind of Christ. Uh, it's, it's so wonderful um, that this could be the case, that he would do that. And what he, what we're being, what's being revealed this morning is that Jesus understood that saying yes to God's will was so much better than saying no to self-rule and that it was the only way to live life forever with God. No matter what, it's the best way to go because it's the only way to life with God 
no matter what the consequences. And some of those consequences that we're going to be considered together today, um, they might be mental suffering, they might be spiritual suffering, they might actually be physical suffering. But nonetheless, it's absolutely worth it. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. So my first big point is this, Christ's attitude. So again, just like I've said, in Jesus' mind, he could only accept that the Father's power was the greatest power. And that's, just, that, that's the basic dynamic for, for each of us in our lives to what are we actually attributing the power Okay, And in, in Jesus' life, the greatest thing was to live obeying the Father, who alone had the power to give resurrected life. And I, I just want to remind us of three episodes that kind of give us a bit more perspective of that in Jesus' experience. And if you're taking notes, I'll just mention where I'm getting these from. So if you want to look them up after, you can do that. Um, the first one is Luke chapter 4 and Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And you might remember just shortly after his baptism, the Holy Spirit takes him out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. And Satan is there and says to him, um, I know you're hungry, why don't you turn the stones into bread? And then Satan tempts him with the offer of authority and splendor. And then he says, finally, um, throw yourself down and just so you can prove that you are the son of God and because... If you are the son of God, which you are, the angels will come and they, they will protect you, right? And Jesus at every point basically says, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. Your power is not the power. And that's what he's kind of basically saying there. But then um, towards the end of his life, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you can read this in Luke chapter 22 or Mark chapter 15, Jesus is sweating blood because um, the pressure upon him is so great as he finds himself between the decision to do God's will or to choose a different path. And he's absolutely torn in that moment. And he prays this, this prayer more than once. Father, if you're willing, you can take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. <laughs> so again, the basic dynamic. To whom will he attribute the power? Who has more power? Really, who has life in his hands? And he's wrestling with this, and he knows really it's just the Father, but there's a temptation is to slide out of this and not to take the suffering in his own body, but to be free of that. But he knows that that's not the path to eternity. And so he says, effectively, no, no, the Father's will alone is life. And then just one last episode to kind of put us in the frame of what Christ's attitude was and what he understood. Mark chapter 16, and his temptation and suffering actually on the cross itself. People are yelling at him from down below, come down from the cross and show us really that you are the son of God and save yourself. And that'll finally prove to us um, that that's who you are. And Jesus, by staying on the cross, effectively says, no, no, no. Salvation comes through doing the will of the Father alone. It goes through suffering and it ends up in glory. And so he stays the course. And it's remarkable that he does this, right? Let's not, let's not kind of slide on past just how awesome this is in the history of humanity. <clears throat> because right back at the start, there's a particular moment where 
two brothers, Cain and Abel, were making offerings to the Lord. And only Abel's offering was acceptable in God's sight. It's not that, not, not that God was kind of sidelining Cain, but Cain was very, very upset about it. And he says, it says this to Cain, because Cain's angry with his brother Abel. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And Cain fails, kills his brother. And so on, 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 until we get to Jesus. Because it's the same thing at work. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Guess what? He does. So it's phenomenal what happens through tracking through Jesus' life, but at the cross it's spectacular. That he in this moment will say no to sin, yes to the Father. He glorifies God and he saves us. It's so good. And so his attitude is that he would not be ruled by his will but by God's will because he knows that power and life are only there. And what he knows in his mind is powerfully and painfully felt in his body. So he suffers in his body because he knows there's no other way. Christian thinking and the Christian attitude, Peter says, is to be like Jesus. A Christian body and a Christian life will become like his the more we press in and the closer we are following him. It's hard and it's very, very good. And we're going to talk about this in just a moment, but Peter's going to say, don't be surprised when it happens, right? Because if it happened to Jesus, it will come to you because the pathway to glory is through suffering. So Christ, who says yes to the Father and no to sin, and we are to arm ourselves with that same attitude. And that's what we're working on this morning, right? That's why we actually open the Bible. That's why we're trying to teach it. We're trying to arm ourselves with that attitude. So here's my second point. Um, living for God then and now. So Christ's attitude is to live for God. And Peter says, this is what it's going to look like for those of you who are following him now. It's a radical change that actually puts people at risk of human judgment. But it removes them from the risk of God's judgment. So have a look with me at verse 3 and we'll read from there. This is 1 Peter chapter 4 from verse 3. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So it's a massive contrast, isn't it, that's, that's set up there. So you've got living for the will of God, and um, against that you've got the kind of the, the pagan way of living, excessive indulgence in sex and alcohol, and presumably drugs, they've been around forever, strong sexual desire, physical, mental control overcome by alcohol, excessive indulgence in sexual activity, excessive unbridled partying. It seems like the, the picture of success these days, Right? Just go for it. You can do whatever you like. Let it loose. But what Peter is doing is describing the change that comes that goes from what seems to be an excessive fullness of life and, and success to living for the will of God who made life and judges how people live it. 
And so what happens when you start following Jesus, it puts you out of step with your old crowd, the people you used to run with or the people you used to sleep with because you're not doing that anymore. (laughs) And they'll be completely surprised, but not just surprised, they will abuse you for it. I think you're stupid. And especially in in this kind of first century context, um, some of these things were probably bound up with idol worship. So you were doing these things at the temple in worship of the God that you followed. And so you won't be actually doing that worship anymore. Things change when you become a Christian. Um, a a, A really cool, almost funny example, during the Welsh Revival... There were many, many miners who came to Christ and their behaviour changed so much and what was coming out of their mouths so much is that the pit ponies couldn't work anymore because they were so used to being sworn at. They basically had to learn a new language because of the Christian change that had taken place in the miners. So the mines had to kind of restart because the miners were using their mouths to praise God instead of to curse him. So just a, a, a fun little example of how things can get out of whack when people start to become Christians. Now, the description of all that excess might seem a little bit extreme, but um, in 2019, when I was kind of scratching around for work because I decided that I wasn't going to be um, the Presbyterian minister on, at the Church of the Gold Coast where I'd been serving, I found myself um, just doing odd jobs, and one day I was constructing a bunk beds in a hostel in surface paradise. And uh, there were other younger people than me kind of being involved in doing, doing that work. And one of the guys, um, who was kind of the leader of another team who was um, putting the beds together, he said to me, look, do you want to come and be involved almost in, in this five-way orgy that we're kind of organising with um, some of the other people from the hostel? And I was like, mate, I've never heard that before, right? And I was kind of flattered because I don't know how old he thought I was. But I, I declined, you'll be glad to know, and I said, look, I don't think my wife would be too happy about me taking part in that. But it was, it was quite amazing, right, that um, there's a little window that opened up into the culture um, that was around me. Um, but you also might find yourselves in situations where whatever is going on in, in the culture that you're part of at work or in your family, it really can be quite strong and pushing in a, in a particular direction, but as you revere Christ as Lord, which we looked at last week, and he has more power over you, and you want him to have more power over you than these other things around you, this is what happens, right? And Peter's saying, yeah, that's right. And suffering comes through human judgment because the people around you say, what, what's this Jesus thing? What do you listen to him more than you listen to me? Didn't we used to? And you say, yeah, we did used to. Not anymore. But the suffering that comes through human judgment because of Jesus removes us from the risk of God's judgment. It's a really cool um, opposite thing that's at work here that Peter's encouraging them to consider. These pagans will be held to account by God, but the Christians will not. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been preached as the point of reference for understanding this, And God's judgment for living occurs on this basis. So maybe he's talking about Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison, which we considered a little bit last week. Or maybe he's talking about Jesus preaching 
to those post-resurrection who have now died in Peter's experience and the, and the, the early church's experience. But whichever it might be, here's the point. God's judgment is based on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the risen Lord, that resurrection is his, that forgiveness with God comes by trusting him alone. And so the Christians can be reassured that as they trust Jesus, they are right with God, irrespective of what people around them think. So the pagans might abuse and humanly judge them, but Christians are living and being judged, forgiven by God. And this gets people moving in a completely different direction. I went to see Sound of Freedom, um, the movie, on Tuesday night. I really want to recommend that you go and see that, at least to support it, be challenged by its contents regarding child sex slavery. But the whole thing gets going because Tim Ballard, who is a brother in Christ, he was engaged because he was a Christian in um, doing some uh, child protection work on the border of, of the US and Mexico. But his faith in Christ actually pushed him even further to leave the territory of the United States to be rescuing children out of sex slavery. So he did not want to keep, he didn't want anyone to be walking down the path of godless sinfulness like that. So instead, he, he keeps looking at Jesus and he walks a different way, putting himself in harm's way to get people out of harm. And I think it's a really good example of what it means to live for God. There's a radical change that then puts Christian people at odds with the world. And Peter's saying it's absolutely standard. And Peter goes on to say, what does it look like if you've got the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ? What does godly living and godly suffering look like? Well, living in light of the end. This is my next point. Because judgment is coming, live the judge's way. And it's quite remarkable what he says. Love. Love and serve. It's so good, so surprising, so beautiful. Have a glance down. Let's read from verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I find this remarkable, right? So in the context of suffering because of Jesus, he doesn't tell them run away from it. Neither is he, is he telling him to kind of run towards it. So he's not saying, you know, you've got to actually seek out persecution. No, not at all. But he's saying, when you find yourself in the midst of it, how should you carry on? What should you do? Well, be like the one you follow. Sacrificially, selflessly serve. So what he's saying is, God is over all. The direction of history is heading towards judgment. He's already mentioned that kind of in the section we've just looked at. And the goal in all of this is God's praise. So, so what are you going to do in light of that? Well, live his way. He says, no substance dependency. Be clear-minded to pray. To pray God's will and God's power. And the highest level of being ready for judgment is this. Loving one another not using each other. 
Because that, that list of, of excess and license before um, sexual kind of licentiousness, really when you think about it and if you find yourself kind of caught up in that kind of system, it's just abuse because you're just taking advantage of each other. <laughs> That's how it works. But what he's saying here is going to do the opposite in a society that wants to use and abuse. Serve. Love. Because, verse 8, that gracious love that gives what is not deserved shows the love that has been received. And it works against a multitude of sins. Because you've been forgiven and your sins have been forgiven, work to love and cover over the multitude of sins with that love. It's living like Jesus. And it's being ready to see and be received by him even as you're opposed by others. So he gives some very practical ways of loving. Hospitality. Why? Why hospitality? Well, it's kind of grouping together. It's continuing to be together. It's serving each other. It's welcoming others, right? It's graciousness. It's just kind of continuing to show love. And he, he, he mentions sharing, not hoarding gifts. Because the nature of a gift, especially in Christian terms, is something you've received without deserving it, right? Not only in salvation, but all the things that God has packed into you as individuals. Tremendous. Amazing. But don't keep them to yourself. Don't keep them to yourself. Um, I, I've, I've been living an example of what it looks like to, um, to do this. And this is just one example that's going on in our church, right? Um, some of us, for close to a year now, have been helping a member of our congregation. And one of, one of the, the, the team is, is excellent at being an absolute terrier inside government bureaucracy. He is fantastic. I turned up to Centrelink um, for a few hours trying to represent this person, and nothing. Wasted half a day. <laughs> But this brother goes in and it's like bing, bang, boom. And it's all happening, right? Another, there's another couple on the team who are just so patiently loving with this person. It's tremendous. They have just walked so deeply alongside. It's awesome. I've been kind of skirting around the edges, helping with finance and some admin and playing that role. But together, we've been using our different gifts to love and serve. So the, the sum is really greater than the parts. It's just been beautiful. And I know there are... There are multiple multiple examples going on in our church community it's so good because we've been loved right and we want to keep working that love out and then he says a really really interesting thing about speaking and I don't think he's just referring to people like Ian and people like me and others who would teach the word of God publicly I think what, he, what he's most deeply referring to is that the power of words is so great that we must reflect deeply and intentionally on the word of God and then the words that come out of our mouths because they have so much power to build up or tear down. So I think he's going to say elsewhere, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry because man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. We do need to reflect more deeply on the word of God and speak more slowly and carefully because it actually is so powerful in loving and building up. So why do all this? Well, it's just being like Jesus was, gracious. And he, he, goes, he says in conclusion, it honours God as this God-like love says, it's your way, not mine. <laughs> That's life. And I really want to live it. I want to show it out. 
And it gets us ready to be received by God and not judged by God because we're just on about what he's on about. And finally, I think Peter kind of wraps back around on himself here and, and comes back into the sufferings of Christ more acutely. And he says, live the sufferings of Christ. Since Christ suffered, Christians live for God and not for self. And we live as he lived because he did it. And it's, it's a remarkable thing, isn't it? As we do that, we are participating in the sufferings of Christ. <laughs> there's, a, there's an actual partnership in seeing God's will being done in this way. And he goes on to say, don't be surprised if suffering comes as you live following Christ, but rejoice if it's the same and carry on. Carry on. So let's just finish reading the passage, verse 12 through to verse 16. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it's time for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Have you ever had that kind of experience when you've taken a bit of a knock or you bumped your head or something like that and um, you, you've kind of feeling the pain twice? First of all, you've taken the knock and you're feeling the physical pain, but secondly, the psychological pain is, you idiot, that was something so simple to avoid, I should have avoided it. Um, oh, I've done it again. What, what Peter is working on here is for the people of his day and for us today to not be surprised by the knock. Okay, it, It's absolutely going to come. And you can guarantee it if you're pressing into Christ... Because you'll be saying yes to him and no to the people around you. And they won't like it. They won't like it. And you might have to wear it in different ways, right? But it's part of being Christian and it fits with the suffering of Jesus. And he says some amazing things here. Verse 13, this is the trajectory suffering to glory. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. You'll be ready. You'll be ready. Secondly, he's saying this is actually confirmation that the spirit of glory and the spirit of God is on you. Verse 14, God's favor is on you. God's protection is over you. It's actually a really good sign. It's not a sign that you, your following of Jesus has gone wrong. It's the opposite. But he's really careful to point out, make sure it's Christian suffering, not as a rank criminal. Okay, so murder or whatever it might be, but he, then he chucks in a really, really interesting category, not even as a meddler. And I, th I think that might be something that's a little bit closer to the bone for us. And I, I'm glad that he's put it in there because a busybody, a sticky beak, someone who wants to make everyone's business their business, and it just causes trouble because of stupidity and sinfulness, don't think that that's Christian suffering. You're just a troublemaker. 
And it's really important that we, that we distinguish general suffering that just comes from stupid sinfulness from suffering that comes because you are genuinely following Jesus as the Christ. So make sure that any trouble that comes is because you bear the name of Jesus and you're being opposed because of him through the way that you're living. And he wraps it up by being so confident, so relaxed that this is okay because he says, you know what, this is the judgment beginning with the household of God. And what does he mean there? Well, just simply this. The world are judging Christians as being wrong. But God looks on the Christians who are being judged that way saying, I've got my eye on you. I've got my hand on you. My judgment is not going to come to you because of the name of Jesus that's on you. He's got some pretty hard words to say. If, that, if it's so difficult for Christians to be saved, which it is because it cost Christ his life so that the blood would cover us, what's going to become of those who don't trust Jesus? It's going to be terrible. But Christian, don't stress that you are being persecuted because of Jesus. And verse 19 is the conclusion. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So don't go looking for trouble. But don't be surprised when it comes. If, Like we looked at last week, if you are revering Christ as Lord in your heart and that, that is showing in your life, well, there'll be pushback, but get ready to have an answer that Christ is Lord, okay? When people are wondering, what is going on with you? Christ is Lord. He directs my traffic. Christ Jesus is Lord. So rounding back again to something that I said at the start, it could be the case that we, today we're just understanding the persecuted church better. It could be the case for you that maybe you are encouraged slightly in the persecution that you're starting to cop in your workplace. Because I know for some of you, you, you are genuinely considering whether you should stay or whether you should go. And this is a word to you. For others of us, it could be the case that, like I said before, maybe people just don't see Jesus clearly enough in us, so there's nothing to say about us because we just don't show it. And so maybe we do need to reflect on, are we actually revering Christ Jesus as Lord? Because he's just so good. He's so good. So I want to conclude with another story that Nick Ripken includes towards the very end of his book. And um, he's been talking with this guy who just did not want to be identified. The guy is literally standing in the shadows, didn't want to be seen. They've been talking in this kind of situation for about six hours. Um, the context is, is an Islamic context. As I listened to this incredible story, I assumed that this storyteller would never be more than a shadow and a voice for me, and I was fine with that. I expressed my respect and appreciation for his willingness to talk with me. I told him how inspired I was by his testimony, and I praised God with him for all that the Lord had done in and through him. I told him that because of his testimony, my life and faith would never be the same again. At the same time, I probed just a bit into his story. I said, you've told me that you're married, that you have sons, that you've led your wife and your children to Christ, and that you have even baptised them. What I'm wondering is this, where do they fit into your ministry? You haven't talked about that. How do they help you? What's happening with your family? The man leapt out of the darkness and suddenly stood face to face with me. He clamped his scarred hands down tight on my shoulders and his fierce dark eyes bored like lasers into mine. I instinctively thought of my earlier question about the number of men that he had killed. 
For hours I'd listened to his inspiring story, but now I was terrified as he shook me and demanded to know, how can God ask it? Tell me, how can God ask it? I've given him everything. My body has been broken. I've been jailed. I've been starved. I've been beaten. I've been left for dead. His words sounded a lot like the Apostle Paul's recitation of all that he had suffered in the service of Christ. I've been even willing to die for Jesus, he pleaded. But do you know what I fear? When I go to bed at night, what keeps me awake, and what actually terrifies me, is the thought that God might ask of my wife and my children what I've already willingly given him. How can he ask it? Tell me, how could God ask that of my wife and children? I told him, I personally cannot answer your question, but I would ask you another question that I've had to ask myself. Is Jesus worth it? Is he worth your life? Is he worth the lives of your wife and your children? He was undoubtedly the toughest man I ever met. He began to sob. He wrapped his arms around me, buried his face in my shoulder and wept. When he finally stopped, he stepped back and wiped away his tears. He seemed angry at himself for this display of emotion. Then he looked me in the eyes again, nodded and declared, Jesus is worth it. He is worth my life, my wife's life. And he is worth the lives of my children. I have got to get them involved in what God is doing with me. With that, the toughest man I ever met said goodbye. He turned and walked out of the room. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that Jesus is worth it. Father, thanks for reminding us that Jesus knew you were worth it. So he kept his eyes on you and kept listening to your voice, glorifying you in obedience and saving us. And we're just so glad. Um, we pray, Lord, for your people in different parts of the world who are suffering today because of the name of Jesus. Please help them to keep trusting him and pointing others to him. We pray for those of us, Lord God, in our church who are feeling the pinch at work, um, in family, just in the community. Make it clear, Lord God, how you want them to keep following Jesus. And we pray for those of us, Lord God, who have been convicted this morning that um, perhaps... We don't show Jesus enough to cop anything. And we ask, not, Lord, that you would kind of step us into persecution, but that you would help us to revere Christ as Lord in our hearts. And that we would be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have, simply to be able to say, Jesus is Lord. Um, so we pray these things, Father, in his name. Amen.